evening, everyone. I'm going to drop everything. Sorry. Uh, this evening's reading is from Matthew 23. Uh, we're starting at verse 13, reading through to verse 28. Yeah, 28. Uh, that's on page 992 in your Red Church Bibles. For anyone who was here last week, yes, it is the same section, but we are focusing on a different verse tonight, but we're reading the full set to give us context for what we're reading from. So that's Matthew 23, and we're starting at verse 13 on page 992 in the Red Church Bibles. For anyone who was here last week, or maybe you might even notice this evening, uh, you might be eagle-eyed and notice that there seems to be a verse missing. Um, it goes verse 13 and then straight to 15. Uh, Martin gave me some homework to try and help us all a bit understand a little bit more as to why that might be. Um, and from having a look, and Martin has checked this for me, so I know that I'm right. <laughs> um, the, verse 14, um, as some Bibles have it, uh, but this particular version, the NIV, this translation doesn't have it in. Uh, verse 14 is thought to not have been in any of the earliest manuscripts of Matthew. Um, so it has been checked against the earliest manuscripts and it has been um, widely agreed that that verse was not in the original text and was probably not written by Matthew but was maybe included because there are similar verses in both the accounts in Luke and Mark. So there's a little bit of information for you, hopefully a little bit of context as to why he's jumping to verse 15 this evening. So let's read, as I said, Matthew 23 from 13 to 28. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. Which is greater? the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, First, clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. 
In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Thank you, Emma, for being so willing to do some extra homework for tonight. I got a cheeky email back from Emma saying, I see you like making us do work. <laughs> so uh, good news is tonight I'm going to not make you do any work. You're not going to have to answer any questions afterwards. Um, but what we will do just after we consider God's word together, I'm just going to leave it open for a little while for us to respond in prayer to what we hear. And just say that if you're going to pray, we just pray loud enough that others can hear you so that we can say amen and that we agree wholeheartedly with what you're praying to God. So we're going to be focusing tonight on verse 15. As you've gathered, we're going to take it quite slowly. We'll pick it up a little bit in the next few weeks. We'll be covering a more, few more verses on each night. But we're coming to the second of these woes to the Pharisees. Verse 15, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. You might just keep that open in front of you, even though it's only a short verse, so that we can keep it uh, in our mind's eye. I wonder if you've ever, ever come across a TV program that was something like this, The Nightmare Neighbor Next Door. Well, even if you haven't seen a program like that, you can already imagine what kinds of thing it contains. Not just people who have loud parties, but people who go intentionally out of the way to cause trouble for their neighbors. Dumping rubbish over the fence and then ringing the council to complain about them. Connecting into the neighbor's electricity and running up their electricity bill. Or maybe ringing the police and reporting them for serious crimes that they never committed. Nobody wants a nightmare neighbor next door. But in these, this verse this evening, Jesus warns us of something even worse than a nightmare neighbor next door. It's a missionary from hell. Now, I did think about us having a little bit of fun with that, and then I thought, no, that gets too dangerous. I thought, let's draw a caricature of what we think the missionary from hell would look like. But what I did was I'm just going to describe my own. It'd probably be someone who comes from another country uh, with little cultural sensitivity. They rush in with their Christian baggage that they've brought from their home country or their church background. They're quick to open their mouths, usually with a loud voice and a brash accent. They arrive knowing it all, with all of their strategies already worked out, and ready to show the local Christians how to do it. Now, maybe later on you can have some fun drawing your own caricature of what the missionary from hell might look like. But Jesus' criticism of the Pharisees has nothing at all to do with their mission. Indeed, even in this brief summary sentence, there's much about their mission that is commendable, even exemplary. Look again at verse 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. But can you see, first of all, that there was no lack of zeal? The Jewish religious leaders were zealous to win converts. 
there was a conviction that their God, the God of Israel, was the one true God, that the gods of the nations were no gods at all that idolatry would result in God's judgment, and that the only hope of salvation was to align themselves with the people of God, to convert, to change. And they'll travel over land and sea to win them. Now, traditionally, the Jewish people weren't interested in foreign mission. If you've ever read the book of Jonah, you've got that loud and clear, haven't you? There was a prophet who didn't want to see a pagan nation turn to God. But the Pharisees, it seems, are different. It's not clear how much they traveled over land and sea, but in a day when travel of any kind was slow and difficult, the Pharisees were clearly zealous to make a big effort to win converts. But what they were converted to was Phariseeism, the true faith as the Pharisees understood it, focusing more on law-keeping than on the hope of the promised Messiah coming. You know, sadly, our zeal sometimes blinds us to our spiritual state, who, after all, was more zealous than the apostle Paul before he became a Christian. He was so convinced that the followers of Jesus were heretics that he instigated persecution against the Christian church. Zeal is a wonderful thing until we're zealous in the wrong direction. More than once I've come across people who've been involved in Christian churches that had a strong view on a particular issue, maybe Bible translation, our views of the end times, our particular moral issues, and while people have been converted to those views, and they can argue those views really clearly, well, they're still not able to articulate the gospel message. How sad when our zeal has won someone to a particular theological view, but they're still ignorant about a God who loves them and sent his son to rescue them. Lack of zeal wasn't the Pharisees' problem. They would travel over land and sea to win a single convert. Doesn't that almost sound great commission-like? Traveling over land and sea, Jesus' final instruction to make disciples of all nations. Doesn't it sound like Paul's journeys in the book of Acts? Traveling over land and sea to bring the gospel to other places. The Jewish religious leaders were no less zealous than the early Christians, than the Apostle Paul, than the modern evangelical missionary movement. So whatever Jesus' criticism is, it's certainly not that they were lacking in zeal. Nor was it any lack of concern for the surrounding pagan nations. I mentioned already that the Jewish people historically didn't seem interested in mission to the other nations. Those nations were the enemies of God's people. They deserve God's judgment, not God's mercy. But the Pharisees weren't guilty of apathy for the lostness of the surrounding pagan nations. You travel over land and sea to win 
a single convert. Doesn't that sound like Jesus' story of the lost sheep? If a man had 99 sheep and he lost one, Jesus asked, wouldn't he leave the 99 and go in search of the one? Well, of course he would. And the Pharisees, it seemed, valued even an individual convert, a single person, just one. Whatever Jesus' criticism is, it's certainly not that they have a lack of concern for people. In the late 1800s, William Carey became burdened with a heart for missions. He had a growing sense that there was little concern in the church of his day to obey the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. And you may have heard that story when he shared his burden with other ministers. An older man stood up and said, young man, sit down. You're an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. Well, William Carey did sit down. He sat down and he wrote a pamphlet entitled, An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heath. And here's what he wrote. Multitudes sit at ease and give themselves no concern about the far greater part of their fellow sinners who to this day are lost in ignorance and idolatry. See what bothered William Carey? No concern. No concern for those who were lost in ignorance, who needed to hear about a God who loved them and sent his son to rescue them. Curry now considered the father of modern missions was used by God to awaken concern among the church of his day to obey the command of Jesus to make disciples of all nations. Well, the mission of the Pharisees was not lacking in zeal. It wasn't lacking in concern, nor was it lacking in sacrifice. Those first missionaries of the modern missionary movement traveled over land and sea at great personal cost. It wasn't possible as it is today to jump on a plane and return home in a matter of hours. Months were spent on boats, many knowing that they would never see family again. No Zoom calls with family members on distant shores, physical letters taking months to get there and then return again. Mission came at great personal sacrifice. We see that too as we read the journeys of the Apostle Paul. His trips around the Mediterranean were no sun holidays. Traveling by boat was slow and tiring with frequent dangers. Communication with friends was difficult and complicated. Mission came at great personal sacrifice. So we can only assume the same for the Pharisees that this mission to win converts would come at great personal cost. Jesus' criticism of the Pharisees is not about their zeal for God, their concern for others, or their personal sacrifice. These things are commendable, even exemplary, if anything, in many ways, they put us to shame. 
maybe your zeal for God just about drags you to church on a Sunday. Far too often, I'm the one that William Carey is talking about, sitting at ease without any thought of those who are without God and without hope in the world. And as for sacrifice, with the thought sometimes even of giving up one evening in the week seems too costly to bear. So if the problem isn't their mission, well, what is it? Well, it's their message. They're zealous for God. They're concerned about others. They're willing to make great personal sacrifice, but their message is wrong. Their message is faulty. Now, over the last few months, we've had a number of faulty things delivered. We had bought our son Daniel a coffee grinder for Christmas. He opened it Christmas morning. He was delighted with it. He was looking forward to using it, only to discover that the little arm on the grinder was broken. And yes, I was one of those people who was on to Amazon customer care on the evening of Christmas Day. We were getting two mattresses delivered to our house here. The packaging labels arrived, confirming that they were the mattresses that we ordered. The guys went away. I took the packaging off them, only to discover that one of them was the wrong mattress, and it was going to have to be collected and the right one delivered. I had a flat pack unit that needed to be assembled. I carefully unpacked both boxes all over the kitchen floor ready to start assembling, only to discover that there were some missing pieces, and I'd have to package it all up again and bring it back to the store. Does it sound like I'm complaining? A faulty coffee grinder, the wrong mattress, missing pieces of furniture. Well, all of that is frustrating, but ultimately, it's all pretty trivial. We can live without the units, we can wait for the mattress. There are other ways to make coffee. But a faulty gospel message is altogether different because there is no other gospel and the consequences are eternal. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 16, there's a recognizable word here. Woe to me, Paul says, if I do not preach the gospel. He understood that preaching any other message than the good news of the Lord Jesus had serious consequences. And in the early church, faulty gospel messages were everywhere, and they were starting to infiltrate the churches. So much so that Paul had to give this warning in Galatians 1 verse 8, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. It doesn't matter who preaches it. 
if it's the apostle Paul himself, or even an angel from heaven, a faulty message is a faulty message, and a faulty gospel message has eternal consequences. So much so, Jesus says, that these messages originate in hell. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. He calls the Jewish religious leaders sons of hell. Now, that's obviously not good, but what on earth does it mean? Well, you might remember the two of Jesus' disciples were called sons of thunder. Now, that doesn't mean they came from Asgard and their names were Thor and Loki. It rather seems to be a description of their natures, either that they were loud or that they were hot-tempered or maybe even both. Sometimes if you do something that reflects the nature or character of one of your parents, somebody might say, you're your father's son or you're your mother's daughter. Our actions or our character reflect that of a parent. Well, it was as though thunder itself had given birth to these two disciples. In the same way, on another occasion, Jesus confronted the Jewish religious leaders who prided themselves with being children of Abraham. This is in John chapter 8. But Jesus said, if you're children of Abraham, you would do the things that Abraham did. Your actions would reflect the actions of Abraham. But instead, he says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. The devil, Jesus says in John 8, is a murderer and a liar, and the Pharisee's behavior reflects the character not of Abraham, but of the devil. They belong to the evil one, and they will share in his destiny. They are sons of hell. This message, the message of the Pharisees, is a faulty message, and it leads to death. It's false, and it leads to destruction. It originates in hell because it is the lie of the evil one that by our own efforts, by doing the right things, we can be right with God and enjoy eternal life. It's a message that requires no cross and no savior. It's a message that originates in hell and it leads to hell. Jesus says you travel over land and sea to win a single convert and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Twice as much. Now, I don't think Jesus means that they come under greater judgment than the false teachers. If anything, the New Testament suggests that those who teach a false gospel will face a far greater judgment. It's more that sense of belonging to. Remember Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 8, you belong to your father, the devil. Well, those who are converted to a false gospel, a Christless gospel, a gospel with no need of the cross, 
are twice as much in the grip of the evil one as they were before. Because now they have an assurance that they are right with God, even though they are not. And what a terrible place that is to be. So much so that Martin Luther had a way of putting these things. He said it would have been better for some converts to remain simple little sinful pagans rather than to be converted to a false gospel. Why? Because now they're convinced they're right with God, even though they're not. They don't see their need of God. They're in a worse place than they were before. Now, my guess is you've probably discovered that already yourself when you try to explain the gospel to some of your friends. Because usually it is the most religious, most moral, most upright of your friends who are most resistant to the gospel message because they have a false assurance that they are okay with God. They don't even see their needs of the Lord Jesus. And sometimes we can foolishly mistake zeal for God, concern for others, and personal sacrifice for genuine faith. But none of those things make us right with God. But they're so religious, we think. They're so concerned about other people. They're so generous. They must be Christians. But when we start to think like that, we too have been deceived by a message that originates in hell and leads to hell. We need to take the warning of the Lord Jesus seriously that it is trusting Jesus alone that makes any of us right with God. Now, you may have noticed a word that Jesus uses regularly of the Pharisees, which I've so far avoided. It was in last week's verse, it's in tonight's verse, and Jesus is going to say it a whole lot more times before we get to the end of chapter 23. What is the word? Hypocrites. Hypocrites. Now, when we use the word hypocrite, we tend to mean someone who's being insincere, someone who's pretending to be something that they're not, someone who's putting on a mask, someone who's trying to deceive other people. But the reality is that a hypocrite sometimes, maybe even most of the times, is completely unaware of their hypocrisy they don't see the inconsistency between what they say and what they do. Other people can see it clearly, but they don't. Rather than deceiving others, all they're doing is deceiving themselves. They're not what they appear to be. They're not even what they think they are themselves. Let's take the Pharisees. They appear to be doing great things for God. Their zeal to win converts, their concern to win even a single convert, their sacrifice to travel over land and sea on their mission. 
but they're completely mistaken. Rather than leading people to God, they are leading people away from God. They're hypocrites and they don't even know it. They think they're doing one thing, but in reality, they're doing the very opposite. So are you ready for the hard question? Are we any less hypocrites if we have the true message of the gospel, a message that comes from heaven and leads to heaven, and yet we have little or no zeal to see others come to know Jesus. We've little concern for the person who lives right next door. The work colleague that we sit and have lunch with every day. The student we sit next to in the same lecture every week. The parent we meet at every school function. The guy we play football with every week or the friends we go for walks with regularly. Are we any less hypocrites if we have the true gospel message, a message that comes from heaven and leads to heaven, and we are unwilling to make even the smallest of sacrifices to see other people come to Jesus? Oh, that God our Father might help us to see ourselves clearly might help us to live lives that are consistent with those who have this message that comes from heaven and leads to heaven, the true message of the Lord Jesus and all that he has done for us. I'm going to leave it open for a few of us to respond in prayer, and then I'll pray before we sing our closing song. So if a few people want to pray,